The following program contains scenes and language of a frank and explicit nature. Viewer discretion is advised. I am the music guy CJ Payne, and you're listening to The Noise Report. This is where we have fun, we laugh, we joke around, and we interview lots of amazing people from across the spectrum of music, movies, pop culture, and all this other fun crap. Uh, If you like to laugh, have fun, and just uh, giggle like a wild juvenile, uh, keep listening, and welcome to The Noise Report. It is another episode of The Noise Report. Uh, you know what we do here. We laugh, we talk, we have fun, uh, we bring on very cool people, and we just kind of uh, bombard them with really random topics and uh, today's victim, I guess. <laughs> um, I come across this gentleman on TikTok who... Um, his videos immediately hit home with me because of what he was talking about. And the more I looked at his videos, I kind of thought, God, how did I not run across this guy? Or I probably did run across him and we just never actually met each other because um, there's so many things. Uh, his name is Michael Larson. Uh, he formerly, back at that time, uh, he was the singer of a band called Highwire. Uh, he now has a very awesome band called Ensign Red. And... He does so much more, and we're going to talk about a whole bunch of crazy random stuff uh, like we do here. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. Hey, thank you very much. Uh, glad glad to be joining you. Much appreciated. Yeah, like like I said, man, it was just coming across your stuff very randomly and so many things that you talked about, but I think the main thing was is your eclectic taste in music. I... That is totally me, and that's why it's what people know me for. My playlists on my when I do internet radio, you know, I'm the guy that will put a block of music together, and it will be like Charlie Daniels, The Cure, Pink Floyd, Slayer, and um, Susie and the Banshees, you know, and people will just be like, What are you doing? You can't do that, like, it doesn't make sense. And I'm like. I could do anything, you know, and that's why I do it is to mess with people because I can, because I had the the music collection to do it. And it's kind of just a way for me to show off that, you know, um, that's kind of why I do it is to mess with people. So I really appreciated when uh, one of the ones you met, when you pulled out the the cassette from the alarm. I was like, oh, that's yeah. cool. You know, like, that. it's just a band that you don't hear that often. And it's a shame, actually, because, I mean, I totally understand that uh, there's – how do I say this? I was very lucky growing up in the sense that I had two classically trained musicians as parents, both oh, my wow. mom and dad – are exceptional music or were exceptional musicians i would say i would say still are my mom will say that her arthritis in her hands doesn't allow her to play at the rate that she used to when i was growing up i just i would come out and i would we had a grand piano mm-hmm. in our living room and my mom was always practicing on it and I'm, I'm talking she's the one that we've practicing etudes by chopin and mm-hmm. Liszt and mozart and 
she would just be blinding, just playing these amazing things. So I would just, I'd, I'd take like whatever book I was reading or whatever, and I would just curl up under the piano and I would just let it let it go. And like, I was convinced my mom was the most amazing player in the world. I'd go to see her. Um, she she would still go and do recitals even after we after we were you know young kids, and I'd be able to see my mom perform in these recitals. I was like, wow, this is really cool. Uh, you know, it's one of those things you don't think about. And when you talk to the rest of your friends, like, uh, no, dude, our parents don't play piano to the point to where they're giving recitals. No. Like, oh, okay. <laughs> and my dad was also a, uh, is a uh, concert caliber violin player. Violinist nice. is the nice. proper word. Um, and uh, he has for throughout pretty much his entire life, maintained his ability of playing with groups and small orchestras and just performing wherever he can. Um, but neither my mom and my dad made music their career. Right. Like they were both, I mean, from, from my years, I always thought that they were talented enough to absolutely do it, but they both chose to go into medicine. My dad's, a, my dad was a pediatric doctor and my mom awesome. was a pediatric nurse and they met in San Francisco general hospital in the mid sixties. And, Hey, that's how things got rolling there, and I came along a few years after that. But they always kept music center to their lives. I grew up with a record collection that was probably several hundred records covering maybe five centuries. Like we had music nice. ranging from the Renaissance. From like I, I grew up, and a lot of people say, "Oh, did you grow up on classical music?" I'm one of the few people that can look at them and say, "When you say classical, what do you mean by that?" <laughs> because, Be you know, more specific. Was, you know, yeah, my parents brought me up on the idea, like you know, there's Renaissance music, there's Baroque music, there's yes. Rococo music, there is classical, classical music, music, which is structured a certain way. Right. There is the Romantic era of music. There is the operatic tradition of the later 18th century. There is the yes. early 20th century. So each of these was pivoted up. And yeah, my parents definitely had a strong, and it's, it's actually kind of funny listening to my parents go up. My dad is very much like he's, he's very into Bach and he loves the mathematical precision of it. And uh, he even helps run this festival every year uh, called the Junior Bach Festival. It takes place nice. up here in the, in the Bay Area. And I've helped him do like website stuff and programming and registration and PayPal payments and all that type of stuff for the festival for the past like I want to say almost 15 years. It feels about right. <laughs> Sometimes in the 2000s, he asked me if I could come on and help him, and I've been helping him with that since. Uh, but, yeah, that's something that he's actively involved in. And my mom's like, I'm just not really a fan of Bach. He's just so cold and calculated. <laughs> so, I mean, these are the conversations I grew up with. Right. And you have that. And, and my, dad, my dad actually had more of a, a taste for rock and roll and my mom was never really much into it, honestly. Right. Uh, you know, she would. All, I mean, I, I think my mom was much more Broadway and show tunes type stuff, which is great. But again, that was something I grew up with. I grew up listening to Broadway. I grew up listening to five hundred years of, you know, very courtly recorded music. I grew up with my dad. Uh, <laughs> I have. I don't know. How, actually, I may have shared this story on TikTok a while ago. But th this. This is just 
my dad in a nutshell. And when, when he told me the story, I said, this explains so much. So he was out with some friends. I, I think this is maybe when he was in college, maybe he was in his twenties or it might've been in high school. I don't exactly remember, but he was out on a, I, I get like a kind of multiple date type night, right? And mm-hmm. they went to a diner. And you remember the old diners that had the jukeboxes? Yep. That yep. were at the stations. You could dial them in and drop a dime in. And, you know, where that's don't put another dime in the jukebox. That's where that phrase came, comes from. But pop in a dime and select a number and put punch it in and play it. Well, they had, I'm spacing on the actual, uh, the original uh, composer of it, but it's a song called The Stripper. Yes, if you're thinking about, wait, you mean as in strip tease music? Yes. <laughs> so my dad actually picked this stripper song, you know. And he is just grooving along to it, having the greatest time. After the song finishes, he kind of looks up, and everybody at the table that he's with is just staring at him, kind of mortified, like, um, Spencer, did you really just play that? And my dad was like, well, yeah, isn't it a neat tune? <laughs> <laughs> and when he told me that, I just said, oh, that explains so much. <laughs> yeah, my, my dad introduced me to the Beatles. Um, he, he bought my very first record, like when a kid record. Would have been 1974, so that would have been... I was six, six and a half, you know, fairly young, mm-hmm. but he bought me my first record and it was the Beatles Abbey Road. And I listened to that record over and over again. And then I think shortly thereafter, he helped me and thought, what else would maybe he like to listen to? Again, you're six years old, you know, right. my dad's going to probably have a little bit more of a, you know, like, hey, maybe I can influence a little bit here. So he bought me um, Good Vibrations, which was the later era of the Beach Boys, you right. know, kind of from smile on up through holland uh good tunes on it actually a lot yeah. of stuff from pet sounds which i thought was kind of neat um also had good vibrations of course and then he uh bought me what was it i think it was the soundtrack to the elvis movie frankie and johnny right but it was some elvis mm-hmm. and so i always tell everybody says, so my first three experiences to rock and roll growing up were the beatles the beach boys and elvis nice cool you know and then I just thought, well, a good, good starting point. And I think a couple, uh, I, I, that was good enough for me to listen to for a little while. And then, of course, I had friends and a good friend of mine that I hung out with. He had an older sister who's like maybe three or four years older than we, we were. And I blame her. I blame her because she introduced to me something wild in and around the end of 1975. She showed me kisses alive. <laughs> And I got a chance to hear that album, and I did. I mean, first off, I'm looking at the cover, going, "What in the world is this?" Right. Wow, <laughs> you know. And then I listened to it for a little while, and after a bit, I got a chance to see what came after that. And then the Destroyer album came out, and she was showing us that a little bit later. I thought, "Ooh, this is cool." I heard Detroit Rock City. I thought that's neat. And then rock and roll over afterwards. So I, I, I was getting this kind of spin-up of Kiss from her and by, I want to say, like the fifth grade, by the time I'd reached fifth grade I was a full-blown Kiss head, like it was my world, I was obsessed with it and so Kiss was my band for an extended period 
But at the same time, I was also listening to music from other avenues. And again, this, you know, older friend of my, uh, this older sister of my friend, you know, also had other stuff that she was into. She was into the Jacksons, you know, so I was listening to, uh, I think that was when Shake Your Body Down to the Ground came out, I think right around that time. So I thought, okay, cool. And again, also, you know, other type of things. I really, you know, Saturday Night Fever came out in 1977. Yeah. And I, I don't care who you are. You did not escape that album. That album was everywhere. And I will, I will die on this hill. The Bee Gees are amazing songwriters. Yeah. They are amazing singers. And whether or not you like the falsetto, those dudes knew how to write yeah. tunes. And they've actually got a much longer history going all the way yeah. back to the late 60s. And the songs that they had uh, back then were actually really quite cool. Very, yeah. you know, very Brit poppy, uh, almost what we would interpret as what became the, uh, you know, the Paisley Underground mm -hmm. in L.A. In fact, the three o'clock covered in my own time on their album, 16 Tambourines. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was really cool. But yeah, what, by the time um, it wasn't a, it wasn't until a couple of years later, I think uh, after a lot of the like the disco thing had happened and that was very much a a thing mm -hmm. and of course that invaded our you know our roller rinks and i had a roller rink and i was a roller skater and i learned how to rex and so that's where i always tell everybody that's where i learned that double part of my personality where because I, I always say i love to rock out but i also love to dance yeah. and i learned that because i love to skate and going to the skating rink and hearing a lot of the funk and a lot of the you know r&b stuff i got a real good ear i i developed a good ear for that because they were always playing it and it was cheap to go to the roller rink for like two bucks i could get a ticket and i could have that ticket and i could be doing sessions all day long they'd let us hang out there all day especially if you brought quarters to play with the video games yes. I care. <laughs> so I, you know it's like i had my own skates didn't have to rent them so i just like i would on saturdays i would go for the first session that would like start at 11 o'clock in the morning and i'd literally be there and get kicked out at six o'clock at night when they had like the older teenage crowd come in and they, anybody under 16 wasn't allowed. So, but I would hang out there all day. And so that was also my, that was my breeding ground. That's where I started hearing music and all that. Uh, be, be careful, man. I can go off on tangents. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's crazy because my parents, my father, who is 70, Two this year will be 72 in August. Uh, he has been a truck driver for 50. This is 51 years. He's been a truck uh -huh. driver for him. Um, he has stated publicly many times, I'm never going to retire. I will quit driving when they either force me out of the truck or I simply die at a truck stop. Um, <laughs> we have joked. Well, there's commitment for you. <laughs> and, and we've joked back that we're not even going to buy this man a coffin. Uh, my, <laughs> my friend Troy owns a, a septic and a well digging company and we're just gonna set dad up in the front seat of his truck and come have troy dig a great big long hole and we're just gonna kind of shove the truck straight down into the hole and just cover it over you know <laughs> like <laughs> um but i grew up in the front seat of that truck basically and um my mom and dad divorced when i was very young and for about the first seven years of my life we lived in that truck we lived in that payroll and just went coast to coast and, you know, from Mississippi to Michigan. And that's all we had was music. You know, we didn't, you didn't have the big 
portable TVs then. You didn't have computers, cell phones, none of that. So we had music, eight tracks. We had cassettes. We had, we were constantly buying new music. Now my dad, the number one rule with my father is thou shalt say no bad of Bob Seger. Bob Seger is his end all. So I heard more Bob Seger than anything, but I also heard, Blackfoot and Jerry Reed and my grandfather when I was home when I finally had to go to school he was a classic country fan um my great grandmother who my grandfather's mother she taught piano and organ for 75 years before she died so we I heard that um my uncle Marty owns probably the largest vinyl collection I've ever seen it's like 8,000 records Oh um, man! <laughs> just you know, he has them in the milk crates, and he's got milk crates at his entire living room, from one corner all the way down to the other, and across the other one is just milk crates of all of these vinyls. And I was exposed to, you know, all of the classics, Nugent and Slade and Swede, and um, the very first vinyl I ever owned, or very first record I ever owned, was Slade by Slade, um, and. <laughs> you know, I mean, I was exposed to all of this music, the, whether whether it was Hank Sr. and Farron Young, whether it was Blackfoot and the, the trucker stuff, whether it was, um, you know, the the stuff my grandma played, uh, what my friends listened to, which was Kiss and, you know, Casey Kasem. Everybody listened to Casey Kasem because it was what you did on a Sunday. Um, so, you know, we had all of this music. And my dad, when we were home, he bought one of the old Zenith. It was the combo TV. Then the top flipped up, and you had the eight-track player, the record oh, yeah. player. Oh yeah, the console with the bar built in. Yes. <laughs> um, so I listened to his records. My favorite was Boston. The first Boston record to me is probably one of the greatest records ever recorded. I played that damn thing so many times. I would just wear his out, and he would have to go out and buy a new one. I would just wear the grooves out of it. After about the eighth copy. He came home and he opened my bedroom door and he threw a copy at me on the bed. And he's like, here's your own copy. He's like, now leave my goddamn copies alone and quit ruining them. <laughs> I was like, all right. <laughs> that means you, you, you must have had a very heavy stylus if you were literally wearing out the vinyl. <laughs> I need, I just, I played it so much. Music is what, I didn't watch TV. I wasn't interested in in movies and a lot of the stuff my friends did when I, if I was inside, I had music on constantly, whether it was bad company, whether it was Bob Seger, whether it was Boston or the Doobie brothers or just, there's so much music and it just bled over into everything else. You know, at 13, dad decided, uh, I had started getting into trouble. I was bored with living on a farm, and I wanted to be a rock star. I was going to be a rock star. He was trying to teach me to be a farmer. I had no interest in being a farmer. So he got mad at me. He's like, you know what? You're going to go live with your mother. All right, cool. Where is she living? Hadn't spoken to her in nine years. Well, she was living in Los Angeles, two blocks off of Sunset Strip. Oh, fun. So she, in 1983, in in February of 1983, he sent me to live from a town of 800 on a farm to live two streets off of, you know, off of of Sunset. So I took to it like a duck to water. It's shh. 
I went out one day to go to school. And as I'm walking to school, hey, man, take this demo. Dude, check out this poster. Dude, you want to check out my band? And I was like, music free? Hell yeah. Um, So I was just bombarded and didn't have nothing to listen to any of this music on. So mom took me to Salvation Army and she bought me this little stereo. Brought it home. First thing I did, go through the channels. Start flipping through the channels. Come to a channel and I hear the song. I have no idea who it is, but it's the most glorious thing I've ever fucking heard. And I was like, yo. And it was just song after song. I had discovered basically um, KNAC. Oh, yes, of course. Channel never moved. Uh, the song was actually, it was, wow, Grim Reaper, Welcome to Hell. And, um,. <laughs> You know, I was just introduced to it. Now, when I went back eight months later, when mom had to send me back, um, I had two oversized suitcases that I tried to drag on the plane. And, of course, security was kind of like, what is in here? And I was like, music. And they're like, music. And they opened them up. And it was all the cassette tapes that I had recorded off the radio, the old mixtape style tapes. Just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these damn things that I recorded. And the guy's looking at me like, do you seriously have two suitcases full of cassette tapes? I was like, yeah. So I went back, got back to the farm, and nobody had heard of these bands yet because it hadn't made it to the Midwest yet. So I brought back Quiet Riot and Shark Island and... All of these bands that hadn't broke yet, Y&T and Grim Reaper, and all the farm boys, you know, they wanted to make fun of me all with my ripped jeans and my leather coat and all the stuff that I had kind of adopted, and I caught so much shit from them. Oh, you got ripped jeans. Your dad can't afford to buy you jeans with not holes in them, blah, blah, blah. We went on summer vacation, and... Quiet Riot broke, Metal Health broke over the summer, followed by Pyromania. Come back to school and everybody was wearing what I was wearing when I come back. And I just, I let them have it. I was like, fucking poser, you're a poser, you're a poser. And they're like, a poser, you're a fucking poser, dude. Six months ago, you made fun of me for wearing that shit. Shut. Now you're wearing it. Yeah, so now everybody was coming to me. Do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? And I was just handing out these cassette tapes. Like, here, I, I, I don't even know what's on it. Just take it. You know, I, I guarantee it's something good. And it just went from there, man. It just, I've always had a passion for it. And it bled over into country and Americana. It bled over into reggae. It bled over into jazz. It bled over into hip hop. And, you know, just silly shit like I have an affinity for Patti LaBelle. Now, I know I'm probably the least looking person that you would expect to listen to Patti LaBelle. Well, I mean, the fun thing is, is that, honestly, I, I, I kind of I kind of feel with this. Now, I let's see. So, so um, I was a teenager in the early 80s. I went to high school between the years of 1981. I graduated in 1985. So okay. just to give you an idea of, yeah. of uh, the age bracket that I was in there. So. When I was going to school, and I was, it's one of these things that, you know, years later you kind of look at, and I I had a very skewed sense of reality. (laughs) I always told people, I said, yeah, I was one of the poor kids 
that was going to the rich school. <laughs> Which later right. on, my dad looked at me and he said, uh, dude, do you understand what your mom and I did for a living? And for years, I, I just, because we had these places like the yeah. Diablo Country Club or right. Round Hill or Blackhawk, you know, where the rich kids lived, or at least those who wanted to have their family pretend to have people think that they were rich. Right. We didn't, we didn't live in a country club. We didn't live in any incorporated named area. We lived in a generic house that was like built in 1972. And uh, it was years later that I didn't stop to think, dude, you grew up in a house that had four bedrooms, three bathrooms, was like a 20, you know, 3,200 square foot house. And then when kid number four came along, your parents, you know, built a uh, whole new addition up over the garage to put two no- two more bedrooms for you and your brother and an office for your pops. Come on, man. <laughs> and you lived on a quarter acre of land. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know? And it was just one of those things that it, it, I didn't realize right. because my dad did not care about showing people how much money yes. he had. It, that was not his... He, my, my dad grew up in Detroit. So nice. cars to my dad were pointless. He thought, I am not going to spend money. He, he understood at the time. He said, cars are a waste of money. Mm-hmm. You know, I am not going to bother, especially at that time. Says, I am not going to bother going out and spending, you know, top dollar every couple of years to trade in to get the latest model. Is I know what this junk is. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, as long as it runs, I don't care. So, you know, he was very, very, uh, although for the, for the majority of my life growing up, cars had to be American. I mean, right. because that's from Detroit. They built cars Still. in Detroit. And it's like, you're going to drive, you know, like, and thinking back, you know, I, I joke with everybody I, when they ask me, like, so what was like your first car? Like thinking, oh, did you like drive a, you know, because again, rich area. So my first car was an AMC Hornet. <laughs> they went, I, what? I said, yeah, I drove an AMC Hornet and uh, it was the most ugly thing in the, in the world. It was what my dad happened to have at the time. And he said, hey, time for you to learn how to drive. Um, I don't, you know, I mean, if you want to be on your bike for the rest of your life, that's up to you, but I'm pretty sure you probably want to learn how to do this. So he taught me how to drive a three tree, which is what, uh, AMC Hornet was. And if you've never driven a Hornet before, you, you know, threw it in reverse at the top, pulled it back to first, chunked it over to second on the right, and then pulled it down to third. But heaven help you. If you, you lost what you were doing and you went from first to third, yes. you would cross <laughs> the gears. And you would lock them up, and your car wouldn't shift. Then you'd have to pull over to the side of the road, get under the car, push in the clutch, reach under the car to grab the little linkage things and flip them. Mind you, those linkage things are on the opposite side of the tailpipe, which is scorching hot. I still have have little bitty scars on on my left forearm. That you can still just barely see these little discolorations because those came from the tailpipes. Like, jeez. Oh, <laughs> so, but you know, I, and I, I drove that car very happily until uh, the transmission blew out on it, and my dad just said, "Yeah, it's not worth fixing." Um, so that all right, well, that was cool. My grandmother had a Ford LTD wagon <laughs> that you know she was older and she was just not driving it, and it was just sitting in the garage. And things are said, indestructible. I want, to, I want to give Michael the, uh, the the station wagon. Do you think he'd be okay with that? And I said, Yeah, 
I'm fine, you know. I didn't care, but it was just funny. Like here I am, I'm driving to school in a big old Woody, right? <laughs> and all these other kids, you know, who have like traditional cars, and here's this massive station wagon showing up to school. And at first, I was laughed at for it, but then when everybody realized I could fit eight people in a car and take them out to lunch, I kind of became sort of popular. <laughs> and of course, that was where I had retrofitted the car i put a tape tape deck in and we would go driving all over like the place i lived was out in the in the east bay of uh, san francisco this area we call the Mm tri-valley and it hooks up and there's uh two counties well three counties that hook up if you go far enough out but um you have these these three areas that and so you got lots of driving space and back then you had lots of uh kind of country semi-rural roads that you could drive on and we used to love doing that we would just get in the car after school and uh we'd go drive out to wherever and we'd put the tunes on and we'd just listen for hours on end and same deal you know it's just and it just depended on who I was hanging out with. I was hanging out with one of my metalhead friends. Oh, okay, cool. We're going to listen to Crocus. Awesome. Yep. Whatever. Uh, or Y&T. Great. That's cool. I get one of my one of my punk rock friends. Oh, all right. Cool. We're going to listen to Gang of Four. We're going to listen to GBH or... Uh, Dirty Rotten know, Imbeciles. Uh, or, or <laughs> all right. Awesome. Another one of my friends, you know, a few of my friends were like goth geeks. And it's like, oh, cool. We're going to listen to some Sisters of Mercy or we're going to listen. So I was open to all of it. Yeah. Uh, Couple other, uh, a couple other of my friends were very much into R&B and into Prince yes. and into the time. And so the beauty of that was at a time when you were very much judged yes, like by your peer group based on the music you listened to. Like if you were going to say, oh, I'm into heavy metal, well, you had to prove that you right. were into heavy metal. Where's your leather jacket? Where's your long hair? First off, I'm not going to go through the hassle of every day having to hear my parents yell at me for trying to grow out my hair. I just, I tried it for a while. I'm just like, this is not worth it. I'll deal with this as an adult, whatever. And so I just, I cut my hair normally. I didn't really care, but I listened to whatever, you know, I listened to whatever music, but because I didn't look metal, obviously I wasn't. And because I didn't look punk, well, obviously I wasn't. I don't know if you can look R&B, but sure enough, people were like, you yeah. don't quite fit the stereo. Like, I just grew up listening to everything. And I enjoyed listening to everything. And so I took what I could from it. And it was just sort of, like, I, I guess a lot of people kind of figured that, well, he seems to be definitely into a lot of the alternative stuff. Uh, he likes Prince. He likes... Um, kind of the punk rock stuff and the edgy things. I mean, yeah, okay, he listens to some metal too. Cool, all right. But I, I, I played guitar um, half-assedly, frankly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I grew up with it. I could, you know, I could make noise, and I, I was happy. But I never really threw a lot of attention into what I was playing. That's, I had, that's I had me a, with know, bass. <laughs> and, 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 and same later on, I, I played bass too, you know, picked up a bit with it. But, you know, I, I played enough to get by, enough to write some songs, hit out some chords, but I never, like, sat down to get really serious with it. Right. And a lot of my friends did. Like, I had, we had a few, few guys in my school who were really, oh, man, there's this one kid. He was such a, you know, amazing player, total shred guy, you know, at the time. Ingve was coming up in 84 and 85, and this guy could play Ingve. Like, wow, okay, yeah, I, I can't do that. Or he could play Eddie Van Halen. And everybody bragged up this guy. Well, years later, I had always asked, hey, whatever happened to that dude from high school? Oh, yeah, he just, you know, he 
he got all the attention then. He didn't really care after that. He went on, got a regular job. He's, you know, he's doing fine. But uh, yeah, music wasn't a big thing for him. Like a lot of the kids in that area, because of the money, because they were well-to-do, they had families that had, I don't know, entrepreneurial businesses or they were involved mm-hmm. in finance or whatever. You know, it was easy for them to put on airs about whatever life they were going to lead. Right. But everybody knew at the end of the day, are these the guys that are going to go out and actually start a band? Of course they're not. No, they're going to go to college. They're going to get their degree. They're going to come back and they're going to work for mom and dad. And they're going to you know, work their way up in whatever system they are. And again, I'm not dissing them for it. I'm no, not saying I mean, that's what not people at all, do. Man. I get it. But for some reason, again, me with my ADHD brain, very overly sensitive attitude to everything – Definitely feeling like I was, you know, looked down upon or picked on or whatever else that was going through my head at the time. I had something to prove. Mm-hmm. And I decided I needed to do this. And it was it surprised a lot of people when I said, yeah, I decided to put together a band. But that doesn't make any sense by itself because everybody thought, how is this super shy kid who's kind of goofy, kind of gangly? doesn't really have a lot of, you know, social graces or skills. How is this guy ever going to make the, you know, step into becoming a musician? And again, I talked about this like last year on TikTok, but I haven't brought this up since. So just for fun, I'll throw this out there. Um, I had a stint in my senior year of high school where I was a male fashion model. Nice. And the story about how that happened is kind of hilarious. I was working with a friend of mine uh, from, from school, and we got jobs at Nordstrom for the holidays because, well, that's when they needed us. Right. And so we would drive up there, and I would you know, work in the back stock room there, and we'd hang out and all this. And I remember just walking around and setting up things and looking at whatever they had and just kind of doing my thing. And this one girl that, interestingly enough, my, my friend started dating – but uh, that girl looked at me and she said, hey, have you ever thought about being a model? And I thought, <laughs> okay, cute. Ah, ah, ah. Yeah, here we go. I, I thought it was a total like setup. Or like, all right, right. Who's, what's the joke? Here we go. I'm going to be made fun of. La, la, la. I said, no, I'm totally serious. I would right. love to see uh, you, you know, maybe do this. I said, hey, I've got a photographer that I would love to have you talk to. So she gave me his phone number. I thought, okay, whatever. And I misplaced the phone number. Right. I'm like, oh, geez, I don't want to have to look like a complete flake on this. So that, well, I know the guy's name. Okay. And I looked, well, okay. So I looked up in San Francisco's yellow pages because I knew it was in San Francisco. And I looked up and I found the name and I thought, oh, cool. Hey. So I dialed up the number and I said, hey, how you doing? Guy's name was Dave. Hey, Dave, this is, uh, I, my friend Vicky gave me your number and he's like, "Uh uh-huh. Okay. Vicky, who? All right, sure. Um, well, hey, look, you know, why don't you just come out? Let's see who you are. Let's chat for a bit. And let's see. Maybe something can work with it. We'll talk about it. Whatever, you know. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was. I came out and I talked to him. He says, "Oh, okay. Hey, let's try a couple things here because he had like his studio set up, and there was somebody that was there. So did my hair and did some pictures with it, and he." He said, come back later. He says, all right, I thought this was kind of cool. Look at this. Now, look, I'm not going to give this to you for free, but, you know, here's, like he said, something effective. Like, if you want to give me $125, I will give you the main prints. I'll give you the negatives, and here you can have it. And if you decide not to, no problem. I'll just put it up on my wall. But, 
Uh, well, yeah, I would kind of like that. That would be cool. Sure. All right. He said, great. Hey, while you're at it, I want to give you some names. Here, give some people a call. And I did, and I talked to a number of people. And in the process of doing that, I went and I talked to a couple of agents, and I found this one agent in San Francisco. And he said, I actually think you got a really good look. I'd like to represent you. Let's talk about this. Well, the funny part was when I called back to Vicky and I told her all about what happened, she was mortified because she said, oh, my gosh, wait, that's not the David I was supposed to you know, I found another David <laughs> with the same name, photographer. It was not the one she had intended me to go to. But because of that, I literally went to a photographer who didn't know me. But he looked at me and said, you know what? I think you might be able to do something here. Let's roll with this. And that had a huge impact on me. Not only did it have a huge impact because I was like, I went to a photographer who didn't know me from Adam, who looked me up and says, yeah, we can maybe do something with this. And then that sent me to a couple of agents who then said, yeah, we can maybe work with this. And suddenly I'm thinking, who am I? <laughs> you know, why, why in the world did I never think to do something like that? Well, because I never had the guts to. But for once in my life, I just spurred on something. I didn't want to have to show this girl that I was a flake. So I followed through totally by accident and had this experience. And the weird part was once word got around in my high school that I was a fashion model. Sure. Some people made fun of it, but a whole lot of people were very interested. And I became popular in a manner of speaking over it as a very weird kind of a popularity, but I did. And suddenly people who didn't pay, the, pay any attention to me at all started coming out of the woodwork and started talking to me and asking me things. And literally girls were asking me out. And that was weird. Like, whoa, where did this come from? And because of that experience, like I spent a year doing it and over time. I mean, I did some runway work. I did a little bit of print work. It really didn't make me a lot of money. I didn't like yeah. set the world on fire or anything. But it was enough of an experience that it gave me – well, first off, I went out on hundreds of calls. And people look at my pictures and go, okay, great, thanks. Uh, let's see. You're a little tall. You're kind of young, a little skinny. Uh, the eyes are a little too blue. Pass. Uh, oh, the nose isn't filled in. You don't look like enough of an adult. Pass. You know, right. and I would get all these. So I would just go, oh, my gosh. Okay, fine, fine, fine. But I would also get work. And so I realized, all right, cool. Then this does work. Like, I'm not, it, it's just, it's that salesman training, right? Yeah. You're going to knock on a hundred doors and a hundred of those doors, 90 of them aren't even going to bother to talk to you. You know, five of the 10 left over might give you the time of day. And maybe two of them will actually say, all right, let's do something. That's all you need sometimes. Right? And I have enough of those experiences to say, okay, I, I, I think I get how this works. And it helped me build up a little bit of a, of a hide, you know, I, mm -hmm. I got to the point to where I could deal with rejection. I could deal with people saying nasty things about me and not nasty because it was like, if, if you first respond to that, it's like, Oh, I didn't get the job. They think I'm ugly. Oh, you know, it's, it's no, it's just, dude, your eye color doesn't work or right. you're six foot two and they need somebody who's uh, six foot even, right. or you've got a 30, you know, you've got a 32 inch waist. They need somebody with a 30 inch waist or you, you know, yeah. hey, look, dude, you've got, you've got this weird, like, You've got broad shoulders and you've got a, you know, kind of short legs. It's a little weird, but you know, we'll work with somebody else, but we can do other things with you. Right. And I 
so my hair got started to become multiple different colors because I was doing hair modeling, you know, I mean, sure. Or I was doing other type of stuff or I was doing runway walk because again, broad shoulders looks great in person, terrible in pictures, but look good in person. Right. So that worked, you know? And so I learned all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, okay. I developed a thick skin. And because of that, by the time I turned 18, that was the point where I finally said, you know what? I really don't want to be a model. It's It was fun. Okay, cool. But I really don't want to do this. What I really want to do is I really want to start a band. I really yeah. want to be a musician. And at that time, I really wanted to be a bass player. Like I, like I figured I'm never going to be good enough on guitar to match these kids I grew up in high school with. Right. Band. I can't do that. But I could probably play bass, and I could do a reasonable job on that, and it would look kind of, and I feel kind of cool in that regard. I can keep a pretty decent beat. All right, cool, no problem. Um, but, but the other thing was right around my 18th birthday, and I told the the story about this that that was right about the time that Rough Cut's first album came yes. out. And I, I learned about Rough Cut because they were going on tour with Dio, and Dio was a band that I was paying attention to at that time. Dio had just come out with Sacred Heart in 85, and Hungry for Heaven was in, I think, the Vision Quest movie, or so it was in some movie. It was very, it was getting popular, and I learned that he was going to oh, be it playing. Oh, it was an Iron Eagle. Oh, there it was. Yeah, thanks. Okay. Yes. Iron um, Eagle. That one. That's yeah, my favorite but, movie of all time. <laughs> I don't care how cheesy that movie is. Between the soundtrack and just the overall uh, everything. I mean, there's a lot of great movies that define that era. You know what oh, I'm yeah. saying? But to me, Iron Eagle, the planes, the the friendship, the 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 groups oh, yeah. that would, you know, the 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 losers versus the jocks whole mentality and doing stupid things to oh, prove. Yeah. Um, there were so many elements of that movie. Like I've seen that movie probably over a thousand times and I just never get sick of that movie. Like I watched that movie. I watched uh, that movie probably 10 times a year. Like I watch it probably once a month or once every month and a half. And I just never get sick of it because it, you know, like uh, th- that that deal song when he comes in off the runway and he blows it up and the fucking smoke and the flame, you know, and it, you're hungry for heaven. And, it, you know, he flies <laughs> through the smoke onto the runway. Said, Come on, dude. That is just, this is everything about that. You know, when he straps the thing to his oh, leg yeah. and the next thing you hear is one vision from Queen. And, I mean, it's just, there's so many things about that movie that I just love so much. Like, I just... No, I, so, so I totally, I can totally appreciate it. Yeah. But the, the point yeah anyways, go ahead. Sorry. Dio was very kind of like, yes, the hip, like, he was a hip thing at this point. Yes. Like I'm realizing, of course, it's, you know, th- here we are in, um, you know, you know, here's a guy who's in his mid forties now yeah. you know, going out playing with this. And I was doing the math. And so he's like in his mid forties. Yeah. Started out okay. in a doo-wop Whoa. group in the fifties. <laughs> yeah. I, I've got recordings of it. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he actually played trumpet on their first recording, yeah. which I thought was awesome. Yeah. yeah. For anybody out there, if you really want to go, go, go deep and, and impress your friends, if you want to say that you're like a metalhead who's got yeah. some deep knowledge, Go look for Ronnie Dio and the Red Caps. There's a song called Conquest. It's an it's an instrumental, and Ronnie is playing trumpet. Yeah, 
I think that's the first recording that he ever actually did. Maybe. Uh, so, you, and I think it was like in 1959 or yeah, it sounds about right. Yeah, you know, he was like I think he was 16 or something. You know, yeah, that's been, about right. Been, you know, yeah, so that's that's kind of what I got for anyway. That because of that, I had heard, and of course, I was looking at Bam, you know Bam magazine was a thing at the time. Also, they had it down in L.A. too, but. The, the Northern California version of it. And I would see bands that were being featured in it. Motley Crue had been featured a few years before and, you know, seeing Y&T and seeing Rat in there. And right about this time was when Rough Cut was being featured. And I saw them and like, okay, I, you know, you know, the certain look for the time. And I, I heard it. And I thought, okay, cool. That looks like a kind of a cool album cover. And I listened to it. And what was impressive to me was, oh, oh, wow. Paul Shertino doesn't sound like, well, if you'll pardon the expression, he doesn't sound like a singer with his balls in a vice. Because <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, everybody had that high yeah. king, you know, yeah. up there, tenor tone, and he had this deep, rasp. Kind of really good, raspy, groovy, yeah. kind of Janis Joplin sound. And I'm like, oh, oh, I like that. That's yeah. good. And we would put it in the car and I would crank up the stereo and, you know, take her or piece of my heart or never going to die. And I would be driving with my friends, right? And I'd be listening to this song and, you know, we're never going to die. We're never going to die. Kiss them all goodbye. You know, just, yeah. and I would just like rip with it. I was just having fun, yeah. you know, not really you know, paying any attention, just having fun singing along with it. And at one point I was with, you know, a few of my friends in the car and we were just driving out. And um, I think I said in the video that we were right. driving to the concert when I was doing that. I don't think that's actually right. I think it was just, I was driving somewhere um, right. with them and I was playing the album. It might've been after the concert actually, now I think about it. But point being was I was playing the album and I was grooving to it and I was singing along with Paul and my friend, looked over at me and he said, uh, dude, have you turn down the music? Just turn it down. <laughs> I said, okay. And I'm just like, no, no, no. I want you to sing. Uh, sure. Okay. And I'm just singing. And he says, no, 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 no. I want you to do what you were just doing. Sing. Like <laughs> open up and sing as hard as you could. Like what you were just doing. I went, uh, okay. And I, so I did, I just like let it out with everything that I had. And that, when I was finished, I, 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 and he was laughing. I thought, Oh great. I sound like an idiot. Said, no, no, dude, you may not realize this. Yeah. You sound just like him. I mean, it's raw and I don't think you know what you're doing, obviously. Right. <laughs> but, I, but seriously, dude, I think you might want to really think about at least, I mean, if you want to play bass, that's great. Maybe sing too. Right. You've got a voice. But okay. Later on, I, you know, it, I was in college at this point in time and I met my friend, uh, I, I met my friend, Mike Welsh, uh, and we had just started talking about music and he was talking about Scorps with Uli Roth and I was talking about Thin Lizzy and I was talking about Rough Cut and he was talking about Dio and we both just said, Hey, why don't we put a band together? You know, that, <laughs> that absolutely, you know, that, that completely naive tone, right? Mm -hmm. Wait, you ever been in a band before? No. Have you ever been in a band before? No. Want to make a band? Sure. Do you know how to do this? No. Do you know how to find musicians? Not in the slightest, but we'll figure it out. 
And so, and so we did. So we, so over time, we built a band up, and it took us a long time to do so. But you know, at school, we would meet people, and we would meet friends there. And uh, also, the great thing was, I, we were going to Diablo Valley College, which was a community college, and you know, not one of the big universities or anything like that. But the great thing was, was that there was a lot of other bands that you know went to DVC. And so we got to meet a lot of these guys, like the guys from Castle Black, which was a Bay Area metal band at the time that was mm-hmm. fairly popular. A lot of the guys went to DVC at that time. Uh, the band Ruffians, uh, Carl Albert was the original singer for Ruffians. He went on to front a little Bay Area band called Vicious Rumors, which nice. became somewhat popular. Yeah. Um, you know, <laughs> well known, but Carl came from Ruffians. And Craig Bearhorst was the guitar player for Ruffians and he went to DVC and we had class, you know, we hung out and we oftentimes talked about this. So I learned about his band and I learned about, Oh, good, cool. You guys are playing. Oh, Hey, you know, and at the first time I heard like Carl, and by the time I got out to see them, Carl had already left and a new guy, Rich Wilde was in this place. And I got used to seeing them play and yeah. I looked forward to seeing uh, Ruffians play. And I would go out and frequently hang out and, just study what they were doing and I would study Rich. I would listen to Rich and hear his voice go, okay, cool. Okay. What's he doing? All right. I see how he's, you know, I'm like, like watching, how does he stand? How does it do? Like in in part also, I, I, before I got to do the, you know, to get the band together, I started playing guitar Uh, again. Like I wanted to like have some serious chops to do something Mm -hmm. with, like to write songs, especially. And so a friend of mine said, "Oh, you should go talk to uh, you should go talk to Steve McKnight. Uh, he's the guitar teacher at Custom Music in Dublin." Now, Steve, Dublin Death Patrol. <laughs> Steve McKnight would, by the way, with the band that he was with, was a band called Heroes. And in the process of talking to him, and I had mentioned up at, at, at this point, I was saying, "Yeah, you know, I'm kind of thinking about uh, singing, but I don't really know what." To do and I'm not really confident. My I don't know. Maybe and she said, "Oh, you know my my, my vocal my my singer Timmy uh, Timmy Hall." He said Timmy teaches singing, and uh, yeah, if you want to give him a call, go go ahead. He's, his, his rates are are pretty reasonable. I think. That, uh, oh, okay. So I'm sitting here thinking to myself, "All right." So Steve McKnight, uh, the guitar player for Heroes, is introducing me to Timmy Hall the singer from Heroes. And so now I'm kind of, you know, using whatever my Domino's pizza money that I'm earning <laughs> to help me pay for guitar lessons and to pay for vocal lessons, you know, back and forth. Again, realizing to myself, I'm taking guitar lessons and I'm taking vocal lessons and I'm putting a band together. Is, is this reality? Do people do this? <laughs> you know, but okay, cool. Now here's where it gets fun. About a year into this process, like so, towards the end of 1986. Let's see if we get the math right here. Yeah, toward the end of 1986, Steve's tell, Steve pulls me in and he says, "Hey, I just wanted to let you know, um, I'm not going to be able to be your guitar teacher anymore." I thought, "Oh, it's a bummer." I said, "Oh, well, we're moving to LA." I'm like, oh, okay. He said, "Well, the whole band is moving to LA." I'm like, "Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Well, hey, I wish you good luck with that. Fantastic." Uh, so they did, and I didn't really hear much about that. And then, cool, but 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 yeah, you know, I'd learned enough from Timmy and from Steve to 
be dangerous, and that was good. And so I wished them well, and that was great. And a little while later, um, I we, we had gone down to Los Angeles for some reason. Uh, this was after we, we had started playing, and some friends of mine had gone down to L.A. for some gigs. And while I was down in L.A., I ran into Steve again. I'm like, hey, Steve, what's up? You know, and we just high-fived each other. Hey, it's good to see you. Oh, yeah, by the way, um, hey, uh, my – We've got my band is doing a you know a show. And I said, "Oh, cool! What's well, so, so where's Heroes Place?" Said, oh, no, no, we're not we're we're not called Heroes anymore. Yeah, uh, we our drummer didn't work out. He went back home, and the keyboard player. Yeah, we just decided to settle on a four piece, and we got another drummer. Um, and we're a so we're a whole different band. We're a band now called Cry Wolf. Nice. So if you've ever heard of Cry Wolf, that was my guitar teacher and my vocal teacher. And Bill Deckard on bass and Paul Cancilla on drums. Uh, and they became Cry Wolf. And Cry Wolf became kind of a phenomenon in L.A. And then when they would come back up to the Bay Area, they would, you know, all the hometown uh, kids who remembered them from the high school era and beyond would, of course, flood the clubs. And so the clubs would love to book them and we'd love to play with them. And it was great. But, yeah, so Cry Wolf, that, that's that's my my little story of, of Cry Wolf and how I knew those guys and yes. how they really did have a outsized um, effect on my early days of playing. But yeah, I ran into them there while, and, and in the process of that, getting to know them and getting to know, you know, my friend, a number of my friends who were in various bands, I got to kind of loop in with that, with them. And in the process, we would play gigs and we would go down to L.A. and we would check things out. And then we'd come back and play again. And so there was this cross-pollination that was happening yeah. all the time. And I hadn't realized that out of everybody in my band, I was the one that was becoming the most traveled. Like, I would go down to L.A. frequently. And I would chat with people about it. And I would see what was going on. And I would listen to people. And I'd pick up tapes. and or I'd, I, I remember I actually ran into... Um, one of the A&R people for, for MCA, you know, I just, we were having oh. to be at a club one night and I'm just chatting with this guy. And, uh, I, I'm not sitting here thinking you know, of myself at this point, like saying, I should give this guy my demo tape. I didn't happen to have any with me, but I was in the car. I'd had him dr driven down and I had all these tapes of Bay area bands with me. And I was just in, in this weird mood. And I just said, Hey, come out to my car. I got something. I, I, I want to give something to you. And I'm just sitting here going, this must seem very weird. But yeah, I was like, okay, sure. Whatever. I came out to my car and I opened up my tape case and I handed him a stack of tapes. I just said, these are bands from the Bay area. Give these guys a listen. I handed him a tape from a group called Matt Anthony. I handed him a tape from a group called Kid Blue. I handed him a tape from a group called Flame. Uh, I handed him a, a tape from a group called Johnny band who I honestly really think deserves so much more, but it you know, happens. Um, Almost every band that was on MCA deserved more. Like yeah, they, absolutely. You know? I, and I just, <laughs> I, ahead, and that's just it. You know, MCA, it's, it's, it's kind of also kind of like Capital or Enigma yeah. or any of these other, other labels. It's like, unless you were fortunate enough to land on something like Atlantic or Warner Brothers, you really didn't have much of an engine behind you. And that's why I yeah. oftentimes say when everybody looks at these bands and they talk about the you know, hard rock, heavy metal hair band era and said, well, man, you, you had an entire record label industry 
pushing these bands and uh, making them happen. I said, no, actually, I think a lot of these bands got out there in spite of their labels, especially bands that were on like MCA or who were yeah. on Enigma or who were on IRS or, um, or this, or the, or the uh, subsidiary labels of like Capital or something. Bands that like, I mean, if you had, if you were on Epic or if you were on Warner Brothers or Mercury or uh, who am I forgetting? Well, yeah, Atlantic. You know, th- yeah, those those were the labels that if you if you managed to get a get a deal with those labels, you probably had a good shot. If you didn't, eh, you were kind of throwing the dice and yeah. you see what happened with it. And look, I'm like I'm sitting here talking about this like I'm some old pro. I we we literally got a chance to talk contracts. I think um, three times in any of the bands I was with, and we were either fortunate or unfortunate. I say fortunate that we had people in our group that were attorneys nice like actually understood contract law and each time that we had a contract they would come back to us and they would say do not sign this right do not sign this you are not this desperate (laughs) you know it's like trust me you do not want this and when we started asking questions about well here's what we would like to be able to arrange for like publishing rights and here's what we'd like to be able to arrange for merch things and here's what we'd like to be able to arrange for copyright trademark like you start asking these questions that show you actually know a bit about what the industry is and suddenly they're not returning your calls anymore so it kind of struck home to us like are we not good enough to make it in this industry or are we too smart or too connected for our own good that we can't be taken advantage of or we chose not to be taken advantage of and by virtue of that you know we didn't get that shot years later i realized from working in the tech industry i would slowly come to the dawning and realization oh record companies are every bit as bad as venture capitalists. Oh, yeah. Every bit as bad as vulture capitalists. So they're loaning you money to put out an album, and if it doesn't succeed, you're on the hook for it. Yep. And it's like buying a house that you don't even get to live in. Yep. You know, and and, and if you do happen to do, do well, the record company gets to recoup everything, and you get a pittance. And that's Until it's all paid back. You know, for your first contract, unless you can renegotiate into something better because you're at a position to do that. Almost every band that actually had a lengthy career and made real money did so because they renegotiated their contract, not because the contract they were on made them superstars. And a lot of people look back and say, well, you you had, uh, you know, Guns N' Roses, man. They came right out the gate. And, uh, well, no, they didn't didn't come right out the gate that first album was on the charts was slowly working its way up the charts everybody seems to think that welcome to the jungle was this overnight hit and it wasn't i remember seeing guns and roses a couple of months after appetite for destruction came out they were playing the warfield theater in san francisco now mind you the warfield's not a not a shoddy shot place you know it's it's a 2500 seat venue mm-hmm. that's pretty good but you know, it's not like you're playing Shoreline Amphitheater where right. you can see fifty thousand. You know, but a year later, Guns N' Roses was playing that venue as the opening act for Iron Maiden. 
<laughs> I was at that show, and I was like, oh, well, my, how the turns have tabled. <laughs> yeah. Funny story but, about Iron Maiden. The very first concert I ever seen was in 1982. My dad took me, um, and I seen Iron Maiden and 38 Special open for Rainbow. And Oh, that's cool. So that, was, so that would have been the... Uh, okay, it was the very first... Um, Joe Lynn Turner, right? Yeah, it was the very first one that Joe Lynn did with them. And um, right. it was, I mean, you think about that today, like, God, Iron Maiden opened for 38 Special, like, because they played before 38 Special, you know, and yeah, it's, yeah. it's such an odd pairing when you think about it, Rainbow, 38 Special, and Iron Maiden, like. But in the early 80s, you could do things yeah, like that. Yeah, so, you know, and it's, I mean, that's the great thing about music is now that. Like MCA, like going to MCA, I have such a love hate with them. <laughs> love in the fact that there were they had so many bands that I loved. Hate that they just wasted them. Pretty Boy Flory, Kill for Thrills, Femme Fatale, Jet Boy. There were so many great bands on that label that just got fucking buried through whether it was shitty contracts or shitty promotion or whatever it was. Like we were talking about Pretty Boy Floyd. You know, that was a fun record, a fun band, and the production on it is fucking terrible. And to think about, that was done by Howard Benson. It's raw. It's street. Well... That's how they... The point is, I mean, I'm saying, this is how... A lot of it. I mean, I know because the production of their album sounds an awful lot like our demo tapes. That's how I know. <laughs> you know. Oh yeah, man, it's raw. It's it, you know, it's, it's organic. It's, it's it's meant to be very street level. No, they didn't give you any money to do yeah. any decent work. You couldn't multi-track the guitars because you didn't have time to do it. Yeah. How do I know? Because I was in the same predicament. Yeah, I understand this. And it's funny to think about it because it was done by Howard Benson, who went on to do Papa Roach and Flyleaf and. So yeah. many amazing fucking bands. Like, like you want to say, a lot of people say, well, Howard did a shitty job. I promise you, no. Howard did not do a shitty job. Howard, Howard couldn't do his job. Yeah, like Howard couldn't do his job. Because I promise you, had it been up to Howard Benson, that record would not have ever hit the shelf. And if you probably asked Howard today in an interview, what record does he hate the most that he produced... That would probably be near the top of the list. <laughs> yeah. I don't doubt it. Okay, you so you mentioned Femme Fatale. I yes. have to tell you my Leona Lewis show. So oh, sorry. I love her. Okay, so she's she's she is a doll. So yeah. I have to tell. You, so this was adorable. Um, so back at the time when I was in my first band, band called Moniker, and okay. I was, you know, just kind of you know putting stage clothes together and all this other type of stuff. I remembered seeing her first couple of videos for that very first Femme Fatale album. Mm -hmm. And I looked at just some of the stuff that she did. And you could tell that she was a girl that, uh, or somebody actually, I, I, I found out it was their stylist that did this, but their stylist obviously knew all about going to Tandy leather company and buying, uh, studs and, uh, spots in bulk. And I looked at the the look at what she had. I thought that looks kind of cool. I could do that. Right. That looks kind of neat. So I took a pair of my cowboy boots, and I took one of my jackets, and I bulked it up with, like, 
tandy leather studs and spots and turquoise things. And all. Like a very kind of almost, you know, gaudy Southwest look. And I spangled up the boots. I, I put J caps into like purple straps on. Like they were obnoxious, absolutely obnoxious. And I happened to be, it was uh, the night that I guess, um, Ferrari slash Cold Sweat. They were still Ferrari yeah. at the time. Mark Ferrari's band after Kiel. And Femme Fatale had played the Palace. And they were out there. And I was just, my, my friends and I, we'd been partying and all that, back and forth and walking around. And I happened to notice that I said, oh, my gosh, that's Leona Lewis. You know? And um, and it was really kind of funny. I said, oh, that's Leona. Oh, so everybody else was Sorry. running around. Hang on, guys. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on. And so. I'm kind of just sitting here in this little, you know, shy he, oh my gosh, that, that, that's Leona Lewis right there. <laughs> I'm going right. to go say hi to Leona Lewis. <laughs> Feeling like a complete yokel, but I just right. did. And I'm realizing, like, she's a tiny woman, you know, she's like five foot two or something like that. <laughs> and here's me all six foot three in stacked cowboy boots. So I'm standing closer to six foot four. And I'm realizing as I'm walking up to her going, I must look like a monster, <laughs> but okay. And I just walked up and I said, hey, you're Leona Lewis. And she said, yes, I am. I said, I'm sorry. <laughs> that sounds stupid. Can I try that again? Right. I, said, look, um, I just want to say my boots and my jacket want to say thank you to you. And she said, what is, oh, and she was looking at what I was wearing. She said, did you do that? I said, yeah. She looked at my boots. You did those too. Huh? I said, yes. Well, I, that was something my stylist put together for us. I, I don't have that, but dang, dude, nice job. Wow. <laughs> dude, I mean, I'm like really. And so I was chatting with her about this and just talking about the night and talking about like her recording and all this. And of course, at the time, anytime anybody would drive by, hey, Leona, you ready for the big one? And she would just roll her eyes, go, like, yeah. yeah, yeah. And never heard like, that today. I said, <laughs> do you have to deal with this a lot? Just every single day. day. <laughs> and I said, I am so sorry. She said, you know what? It's a single. It's it's what people know me by. Yep. Sure. Okay. I'm not going to argue with it. But we had it. I mean, we had, a. I think, honestly, like yeah. a, probably a 30, 45 minute conversation. Just, just two people chilling. And after a while, I felt very comfortable. And I was just talking to her about, told her a little bit about my band and what we were doing. And how I was down there with my friend who was settling in with a new group and how neat it was just to be able to run into her. I thought this is really fun. And, you know, said goodnight to her and all this. And uh, she was very sweet. And afterwards, uh, she gave me just a hug after the conversation. I just got a hug from Leona Lewis. That's so cute. Uh, A decade later, uh, through some some way, I I had seen that she was performing in Nashville, that she had kind of resettled and was doing like sort of like the kind of kind of borderline country rock type thing mm-hmm. you know sort of the steve Earl vibe type stuff that was popular in the late 90s yeah and i just out of grins i just i i, I just uh i i saw that she had like an email address but oh cool and i wrote to her i said hey leona um just out of the blue i have no idea if you're gonna remember any of this but did you remember oh 11 12 years ago talking to a big tall you know big haired lots of makeup wearing big gypsy hoop earring guy with a uh, southwestern jacket all spangled up and boots with you and i just kind of said 
if you remember, if you don't remember it, I totally understand. But, you know, outside of the palace, I had a great conversation with you. And she wrote me back and says, oh, I remember an awful lot about that night. And, yes, I remember that entire conversation. How nice. are you? <laughs> nice. No, I... And so, oh, it was so neat. It yeah. Just that was that to, to, to realize that that was a real genuine conversation at a time that, you know, I would just think, ah, she's not going to she's not going to care had a similar experience with jason mcmaster outside of the uh, jason, stone is, jason is hilarious yeah oh he is he's a riot <laughs> scott is a riot too and i was we, we talked to them for a good hour outside of uh the stone in fact uh if you want to do a little bit of homework look up some of the metal edge um pictures of dangerous toys like that first year after the album came Dude. out there is a picture. You know, there's a few pictures you'll see. You'll see a picture of Jason, and he has a necklace that he's wearing, and that necklace has little skull beads with little black onyx beads and little turquoise beads, and it's just kind of spread around. It was held together in the middle by like a leather like chunk to kind of hold it in place. I gave that to him. I I've probably got it on my Facebook. I uh... you know, I I gave him that that necklace, and he was just like. Why are you giving this? I actually put this together listening to your tape when I was in Jackson Hole for a thing that I was I was out doing. And uh, so you were, you, were, you were my companion out for that. And I'm sure it sounded really weird, right? It just sounded really strange. But, but I want to I want to give you this necklace with you know with with you know deer antler skull beads that I found in a bead shop in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, while listening to Dangerous Toys' first album. I must have sounded like a you know but he was like oh my gosh that's really sweet and very cool of you like um and he's looking at his jacket he just says do you want anything like he had all these buttons on yeah. his jacket want anything i'm like I, I i can't just take it and not give you something in return i just thought seriously and i saw that he had this button that just said the yellow rose of texas right it was a big close on pin i said you willing to give up that one it says this uh oh Okay, sure, you know. And so I got the little yellow rose of Texas, and I stuck it on my jacket. And for a while, I wore that with me. And a year later, Highwire gets a chance to play with Dangerous Toys. Right? Nice. We're on the bill with them. And uh, I told my bandmates about the conversation I had with Jason. And they're like, sure, Mike. You know, sure, Kelly. Okay, whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm sure that he'll see you and he'll probably get security. Get this guy out of here. And I was like, whatever. Fine. You know, and it was so we got to the gig and we're loading in. And guys from Dangerous Toys are there. And I just happened to see Jason. And I just, you know, I just thought, oh, whatever. You know, I looked over and I'm like, hey, Jason, what's up, man? You know, I don't know if you remember me. And I showed him my yellow rose in Texas on my jacket. Like, dude. And he came over, you know, total high five, bro hugs and the whole bit. And my bandmates are just staring wide eyed. Like what is going on here? Yeah. It's, it's was, funny because you can have experiences, especially from that era that come full circle decades later in the weirdest ways. Um, yeah. I was playing in a band called Psychotic Therapy in 1990, in, in, in the middle and the late 90s. And um, the running joke among us now is we were metalcore before metalcore existed. Um, 
our manager, her name was Metal Mom. Metal Mom was a 66-year-old death metal fanatic who drove a Corvette and listened to the most extreme death metal that you've ever heard. I mean, she listened to her, her son, uh, Todd, was the drummer of a band called Lucifer's Hammer. Um, we were called Psychotic Therapy. She booked us shows with opening for Borknagar and Malevolent Creation and Deicide. Um, let me go on record as saying Glenn Benton is the biggest boy on the ass of society known to man. Um, that's not a secret. I've said it a thousand times. I'll continue to say it. Um, but so many of these bands, and we weren't really death metal, but we were like way, way heavier than normal, like thrash metal. So it's it's kind of, we were kind of in that space that is now inhabited by bands like Crossfaith and, and We Came as Romans and that now um it wasn't really screamo but it wasn't really death metal um so we were playing these shows we played at harpo's a lot snowstorm comes in from the east coast and babylon ad is booked that night the opening band conks out guy calls us up and said dude i need a band you know nobody else is willing to do it can you come please do this show and we were kind of like, you know, that's a complete and utter mismatch. Like, right? Like, <laughs> why would you book us with? He's like, I don't even care. He's like, I will take the first band that can come here. Okay. So we get in, we hook everything up. We drive through this blinding snowstorm, 10 miles an hour from Jackson to Detroit, which is about 45 miles. We get there, we we get set up and... um. Robbie and Derek are in New York City at the time. They were doing Headbangers Ball. They're right. supposed to get on a plane and fly to Detroit. Well, newsflash. They close the fucking airports down. They can't fly. So they rent a limousine and white knuckle from New York across Ontario into Detroit across the International Bridge through this fucking snowstorm. Now, during this whole time that this is going on, we are playing set after set of our music to make up for those two not being there. Uh, the other three members of Babylon AD are on the tour bus. <laughs> so we end up playing the, their fans hated us, you know, cause we didn't play anything that was resembling what they played. Um, we were playing cover songs. We had no business playing. We were playing Charlie Daniels and the cure and, and, um, fucking um fly, the driving and crying we played fly me courageous um just dumb shit that we, business we didn't even have business playing we were just making it up as we went along and um they finally get there they come out they start playing they finish they go on the tour bus it was so freaking cold the septic tank on their tour bus froze and broke in the parking lot so they were stranded in the harpo's parking lot for two days while they repaired the tour bus. Oh, man. Flash forward to 2018. My friend calls and says, hey, do you want to interview Babylon AD? They got a new thing coming out. I was like, awesome. Yeah, you know. So I'm thinking it's going to be Derek or one of them guys. I get the phone call and it's Robbie. Robbie Reed. And I, 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 we're going through the conversation and I tell Robbie, I said, you know, I got a story. I said, you're probably not going to remember this. I said, but it was one of the craziest shows I ever played personally. And 
He's like, what? I said, you remember playing in a blizzard, 1998, and you white-knuckled into Michigan? And he was like, he's like, dude, holy shit, fuck yeah, Harpo's, dude. He's like, that was a fucking disaster. And I said, remember the crazy death metal band that opened? And he was like, because he was like, dude, they were playing crazy shit. He's like, how do you know that? It's like, I was a bass player for that band. And he just looked at me and he was like, you're shitting me. And I was like, I promise, dude, I wouldn't know this story otherwise. And we laughed about it and laughed about it. You know, and it was just so funny that like 20 years later, this story that at the time was so fucking crazy that, um, you know, it was, it was fun, but you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, it was just, I guess you have those experiences and you remember those ones because, you know, I've, I've had the, I've had the honor of interviewing some of my biggest heroes. Like I'm not a singer. I'm a screamer. I just, I scream and I make it up as I go along. Pretty much, I model my style after Zitrum from Exodus, after Steve. Posters after posters on my wall, laying on my bed as a teenager, thinking, I want to be this guy. <laughs> I do an interview one day. It's a country band of all. It's a fucking country band. Get done, and the guitar player for the country band, he's like, hey, aren't you a fan of Exodus? And I was like, yeah. He's like, well, you know... You know who Zitro is, right? And I was like, well, yeah, you know, just a little bit. He's like, do you want to interview him? And I was like, okay. I said, well, he's in he's in Hatred right now. He's like, yeah. He's like, it's he's like it's the kids' band. And I was like, yeah. He's like, well, I'm their manager. How the fuck is a country guitar player the manager of a goddamn thrash band from San Francisco? You know and He's like, well, I can get Zitra on the phone right now and you can interview him. And I'm just like, okay, you're totally full of shit. Like, there's no fucking way. He's like, no, do 20 minutes. I'll, I'll, I promise you. And I was like, all right, whatever. So we, I hang up. I go in the kitchen. I start making dinner. And about 15 minutes later, the phone rings. I pick it up. And he's like, hey, can I talk to CJ? And I was like, yeah. I was like, this is. And he's like, hey, this is Zitro. And I just kind of stood there like in shock because I was like, Dude, there's no fucking way. Like my biggest metal hero is on the phone. Dude, we talked for three hours. Like That's we had awesome. known each other our whole lives. Talking about, you know, how he's a fanboy. Like when, he, you know, when they got to open for Kiss, and he's like, I wasn't opening for Kiss, bro. He's like, I spent more time standing in the front row watching them. He's like, than I did preparing to actually open for him. He's like, because. He's like, dude, I'm opening for fucking Kiss. He's like, I'm standing in the front row. He's like, I'm fucking 13 again. You know, <laughs> so I mean, he's the fucking coolest dude ever. And it's surreal, really. I mean, even me being 50 years old now and doing this, you know, back in those days, you had to you had to get the tablet out and you had to write a letter and you had to send it in and hope to get a picture or something from the fan club or something like that. Sure. To be able to use the internet now like this, it's so crazy and surreal to, um, you know, or even to, I've become really good friends with Janet Gardner and, and Justin James, you know, and, and of course Lorraine replaced Janet and Vixen when they went solo. So 
I don't do it. It's just so crazy. Like, this is what I love about it. Music is such a, such a crazy, powerful thing, you know, that it just, it it still kind of makes the the hair on my arm stand up. Like the, the awesome adventures I had and, and even just dumb lucking into some of the shows I dumb lucked into. Um, My first band, when I started my first band, I could not find a guitar player. We auditioned guitar players. Everybody could be, everybody could do Melmsen. Everybody could do ACDC. Everybody could do Metallica. But it was robotic. They were just, and it was just like, you know, is there anybody that plays with emotion? Is there anybody that plays with fire that has that, that fucking, you know, that like what Slash had or what like Eddie had, that, that sense of fun. And we couldn't find anybody. Everybody wanted to be Melmstein or they wanted to be James Hatfield. And it was annoying. And being a... So I, I, I totally understand that how that happens. And yeah. I struggled with it for a number of you know, through through a number of bands that I tried to try to be with. Uh, my first band that came together to be you know gracious, we didn't know what we were doing. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> we just we were we were all kids really having fun. I think maybe one of us two maybe two of us had actually been in bands for real. Uh, yeah. you know, and, and in that case, mostly party settings. None of us had ever played a real club gig before. Exactly. None of us had ever like sold tickets for a venue. So that so we were all. By the time we did our first gig in 1987, we were all those. You know, th- this was all new territory exactly. for us. You know, anybody before says, "Oh yeah, I know I'm an old pro." By the time we got to that point, we're like, none of us knows what we're doing, and yeah. we're just gonna have to make this up as we go. All right, fine, no problem. And we did, and we kind of lucked into doing more shows and getting to play with other bands and doing stuff. Um, we got a chance to, uh, have, I think it was like a Halloween, uh, around the Halloween time of 1988, we mm-hmm. got to play with Black and Blue. And, uh, nice. and they actually had, our, our local television station, TV20, came out and interviewed all the bands that were playing that night, and they interspersed it in one of the movies they were showing that weekend or something. And it was kind of awesome because I was like, oh, wow, this is neat. And somebody told me, hey, I saw you on TV. And they showed me being interviewed. And I could barely, you know, I was both excited but terrified to be on TV at the time. So my little interview segment, I sound like an idiot. (laughs) But but you can totally tell that I was very passionate about being there. And I was really excited about it. And uh, it was just kind of cute because I was watching my guitar player sort of picking a little fight with Jim Gavert, the guy that was uh, conducting the interview. And you can see this look on my face. I'm just talking kind of casually. And you see me staring over at Mike and you see my eyes get very wide and my lips get pursed. And it looks like I'm about to just like my my body language is saying, Mike, shut up. Fuck up. (laughs) You are being interviewed just Stop! Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it was one of those things that when I went back to relook at the video, I went, "I think I'm about to kill Mike here. What's going on?" No, it's <laughs> but, yeah, it's just one of those great but, moments. No, it's like we had gone through so many people, and we could not find a guitar player we liked, and we were on the verge of just saying, "Screw it." And being in foster care, I was required to go to counseling, all of that. So my social worker picks me up one day on the way out to the to the to the thing. 
she says, hey, I got to stop, make one stop. I got to talk to this other family. I said, okay, another foster family in town. I'm sitting in the car. I got the windows down. And as I'm sitting in the car, I hear this guitar player. And I'm like, holy shit. It's the fucking craziest version of Victims of the Future by Gary Moore I've ever fucking heard. I was like, that's what I'm looking for. You know, I mean, I immediately was like lightning. That is who I want. So I'm walking around trying to figure out where this fuck is coming from. And I go to the fence and I look over the fence and there's this little scrawny ass native kid sitting on a picnic table in the backyard with an Ibanez, a Steve I Ibanez guitar. And he's just playing the fuck out of this Gary Moore song. Now I immediately think, hey, you in a band? And he's like, no. And I was like, you want to be in a band? And he was like, you got a band? And I was like, we're trying. Um, so he became, I mean, and he was so many levels above us talent-wise. You know, I mean, it was, he was kind of like our own Thomas McRocklin, if you remember Bad for Good. Um, I mean, that's how oh, good he was. And um, he, we played a battle of the bands. We won. The the prize was you get to open for the headlining band of the local arts festival. Cool. Who is that? Well, we don't know yet. We haven't booked it. So six weeks later, we're informed, okay, you're opening for Jerry Lee Lewis. Ooh. That's neat. <laughs> well, yeah, except we were like this really heavy. I mean, we were kind of playing this Saigon kick-ish kind of. Like, we were heavily influenced by, like, Gary Moore, but also, like, Man of War and music that was heavier, but still kind of hard rock, yeah. I guess. Um, I get you. So, we were kind of like, okay, Jerry Lee Lewis is going to fucking hate us. Like, our, the crowd is going to hate us. We don't play the right kind <laughs> of music. So, we go up there and we do our best. About three quarters of the way through the show, I, I've told this story. I look over to my left, and Jerry Lee Lewis is standing. You know, if you remember, they pull up, like, the festival wagons, the old trailers. and Yeah. He's standing on the side watching us. Now, my first thought is, oh, this can't be good that Jerry Lee Lewis came <laughs> off the bus to watch us, right? Like, we are doing something terribly wrong. So we finish, and as we go to walk off, he steps in front of us, and he sticks his hand out. And I'm, I, so I shake his hand, and he looks up, and he's like, you know, for a bunch of kids, you don't actually suck. <laughs> I'll take it. Coming from you, that's as probably yeah, as close to yeah, a compliment yeah. as you're oh, going to get. Feel that. You know? <laughs> I will take it. And then we just walked away because I was like, you know what? I'm not going to push it. It is Jerry Lee Lewis. He's old. He's cranky. He's volatile. Just get the hell out of his way. Um, and then he proceeded to just make us sound like complete fucking amateurs, you know? Um, <laughs> and we were, but Jamie was such an amazing guitar player. Like, it just... You know, he he passed away a few years later. He was he was diabetic, very bad diabetic, and his blood sugar dropped. And someone who was trying to help him over injected him with insulin, and it sent him into insulin shock and killed him, and crushed me. But you know, I mean, look, I I don't hold a grudge. I I understand the person was trying to help. I also understand, like, look, if you're not a doctor, you shouldn't be injecting anyone with insulin. But, you know, it was the 80s and people did crazy shit. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I lucked into some really crazy – I've lucked into some really crazy shit over the years. And, um, you know, we got 
playing Harpo's. I mean, I've opened for King Diamond. I've opened for Seven Dust. We've opened for Doro. Um, you know, people that people that you think are going to be the meanest and the cruelest people. King Diamond, for example, I was terrified to meet King Diamond. I thought King Diamond was going to be this just this evil person. He is. He come walking in and he had this little puppy. And he's just like, oh, here's my puppy. You meet my puppy. And he was he was the kindest person, one of the kindest person I've ever met. And I, and I was sitting there just thinking to myself, Jesus Christ, you're nothing at all like what you portray on the stage. Like, I'm expecting this cold, mean, evil person. And he's not like that. Doro is so funny. Like, Doro, when we played with Doro... It was actually Dio, Doro, and Ingve Melmstein show at the Royal Music Theater. And instead of loading in and doing what we were supposed to do, I stood out in the rain. I wanted to meet Doro. Huge Warlock <laughs> fan. She come off the bus finally, and we went to ask her for a picture. And she said, one minute, one minute, I got to check something. And she goes back, she comes around the corner, and she stands there for a minute, and then she comes back. She says, I can take pictures now. She takes pictures. And I was like, are we sure you got time? And she's like, oh, yeah. She's like, I got plenty of time. The douchebag is still loading in. She was waiting for Ingve to get his damn stuff out of the way. She's like, I got time. The douchebag is still loading in. But it was just like, we laughed about that. Like, Doro called Ingve a douchebag, you know, um, in that German accent she has. And it just, yes. yeah. Um, you know, and what, and one of the things that I think many people don't, appreciate and it's something that over time I was very fortunate to have enough experiences where I learned this early on when I was first playing out and getting a chance to play with bands that I had grown up with or that I had experience with or that I owned albums from right mm -hmm. same, same experience right I'm thinking to myself these are rock stars these are larger than life people yeah and as you meet them and as you talk with them and you get a chance to actually converse with them, you realize they're just entertainers. Yep. Yeah. That when you get right down to it, that's what every one of them is. I'm yeah. kind of laughing. So looking at some of the comments, like there's a couple of TikTok videos I want to answer. And one of them was like, you know, uh, the, you know, you know, Dio and his whole image and his, this like, <laughs> warlock and sorcery was bit. so short. Like, how much thought was going into all of this? And I said, gang, look, when you get right down to it, Dio, Doro, um, you know, fill in the blank, yeah. uh, Alyssa Glues of Arch Enemy, whatever, you know, who, whoever you want to you know, pull in, Fleur Jansen of Nightwish, they're entertainers. Yeah. That is the core of what they do. They are meant to appear larger than life so that they give you a good performance. Right. When I go out on stage even today with my band today, you know, I don't want to go out on stage as just a schlub that's there and I'm going to sing as though, like, you know, if that's the case, you can get anybody right. out of the audience and sing. I want to give you a show. I yes. want to entertain you. I want to give you something more so that you might go back and go, hey, those guys at Ensign Red, wow, they actually know how to put on a show. They actually know how to perform for an audience. They're not just standing on stage just going, oh, we got a song. It goes like this. You know, 
I want to give people a show. Yes. And and so that's why you know I, I joke with like, there's a video on my thing where it says the rule, rule number one of Ensign Red is I don't tell my bandmates what to wear on stage. Yes. But Testify. rule number two is they don't tell me what I can wear either. Yeah. And so I you know I've never been a jeans and t-shirts kind of guy on stage ever yeah. uh, because I. I believe the audience is owed a show from the performers. Yeah. I am an entertainer first. If that is what I'm going to be doing, even this weekend, I'm getting ready and I'm putting all my stuff together. Uh, I'm going to have to unfortunately jump out of here because I do need to continue backing. But I'm going down to uh, the Kearney Renaissance Fair and I'm going to be performing with a Gawazi belly dance group. Nice. And I'm going... And my daughters are going to dance, and I'm going to be playing oud, and I'm going to be playing quattro, and doombeck, and just playing you know various songs. But my point is, we are there to entertain, and we are there to reenact that so that people yeah. can experience that and enjoy it to the best of our ability. And that's where my place is. So I'm yeah. going to for this weekend. I am going to inhabit being an Arabic music performer. And I'm going to dress the part and I'm going to you are not going to see me in anything that looks like my modern garb at all nice. for the whole weekend. And I'm totally looking forward to doing this yeah. to be able to lose myself in that part and just enjoy entertaining people that come by to see our shows. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. But that's something that I think everybody that does have the ability of sustaining a career in this, they recognize that. That's the first and foremost thing they focus on is we are entertainers first. King Diamond realizes that his shtick is exactly that. It's a shtick. Everybody else that's got any longevity in it, they realize it's a shtick. It's something that we do to, you know, get people excited about the show and leave entertained. And that's ultimately what we do. Even if we're just, you know, even if yeah. I'm playing in front of only 50 people at a bar someplace, and it, and frankly, in, in this day and age, that's a good showing. You yeah, know, we, I mean, I've played lots yeah. less. I, I've seen, I've, I've stood with five people. I've stood with 50 people. I've stood with 500,000 people. I mean, I, I've stood front, well, about six roll at Castle Donington in 1987 when I got to see Gary Moore. Um, uh, among so many others, you know, I still have a, I, I make the joke. I still have a fucked up eyebrow, uh, from that show because Gary literally just melted the goddamn eyebrow off my face with his, with his plane. Um, first time we've seen Crossface, you know, the bit, the reason I love Crossface so much, we went to a festival to see some other band. I stood there and I watched Crossface. I was so physically exhausted at the end of their show. I couldn't drive home. I was too fucking tired. I had to literally go to sleep in the car for about three hours and then go home because just watching them wore me fucking out. The energy that they had was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in my life. It was just insanity. And, you know, you know, you've seen a great show when you're physically tired (laughs) from that show. Um, So... Um, dude, I, I didn't have a man to keep you for so long. <clears throat> Let's wrap this up. <laughs> Tell everyone where do they find you? Where do they find? Um, I know you, you do your podcast, which is a little different than this type of thing. But uh, where do they find Ensign Red? Where do they find right, yeah. the testing show? Well, well, that, all of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, so 
gladly. Okay, so so you let me let me do my plugging my stuff. Yes. Fantastic. So for everybody <laughs> who's been listening so far, like I said, first off, if you want to see me pontificate about any number of things lately, yes. I've been talking about uh, you know late '80s, early '90s hard rock and heavy metal on TikTok. So if you want to reach me there, I am MKL Testhead. Uh, that's my username on everything. That's yes. also. My blog is called Testhead, and that's the, the domain is mkltesthead.com. I'm a software tester in my everyday life, a quality assurance engineer, and so a lot of the stuff that I do, I speak on that. I, you know, I've, I've had a 30-year career doing that as well as now coming back to being a musician once again. Nice thing is, is that today, you know, because of the fact that I have a career that can support me, I'm not dependent upon a musical career. So now right. I can have a music career for the reason I want to have it, which is to have fun and perform. Yeah. But my band is called Ensign Red. And at the moment we are, uh, you, can, you can hear our music on Bandcamp. You can buy our music on Bandcamp, please. <laughs> that would be great. And we are in the process right now of, um, we've been actively rebuilding a lot of our equipment and, and studio space so that we could, get in and do our recordings ourselves, and we're we are currently in the process of getting material together to record to mix to master and to get out and push so i want to say watch our space on the ensignred.bandcamp.com url and we're hoping to push some new songs in the coming months and if you're there you'll be the first to hear when they drop outside of that we are based in the san francisco bay area uh, we're hoping to be able to start playing shows again soon and get out and you know get our feet wet again. It's been a long time since we've actually yeah. been able to play a gig. Uh, we're looking forward to doing that. So if you are in the San Francisco Bay Area and you happen to see Ensign Red and the Bill, come on out and check us out. And uh, we'd love to talk with you and meet you and entertain you in the process. So, yes. uh, yeah. And outside of that, as we were talking earlier, I'm a podcaster myself. I produce a podcast called The Testing Show, which is nowhere near as fun as this. But if you happen <laughs> to like uh, software testing, right. quality assurance, and you want to listen to a podcast that I produce that covers that topic, you're welcome to come listen. So yeah. there you go. It's it's a very good, cool show. Like It was a little above my head. Like I can talk all day long about the – the aspect of like, okay, this is a cool software program. This is a cool software program. But when you get into the technicalities of it, like the coding and the, you know, the, uh, this is Q, QCA, blah, 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 one versus QCA three, yada, 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 all that kind of stuff. It just goes fume over my head, you know, um, like Jeff Denneman peanut says, fume. <laughs> it's yeah. just, all, you know, um, but it, it's, it's very well put together. I did listen to an episode and, it was kind of like, you know, not something I would normally listen to, but I know a lot of people of my friends who will listen to it and I will be pointing awesome. them to it because they are into that kind of thing. And that's what they do. They're software yeah. engineers and geeks and whatnot. So they definitely will get it. <laughs> you know, to me, you're just kind of throwing spaghetti at me. You know, like, you know, I was like, I don't understand, but, um, Dude, thank you for taking the time to do this. And Oh, you're very um, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolute blast doing this. Uh, we're going to wrap this up. We're going to put this together. Uh, with your permission, I would like to stick um, one of the Ensign Red songs at the end of this. Yep. And um, there is a particular one that I really love. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, uh, but it just has this monster cool guitar riff to it. And um, it's this big, chunky riff that just... Uh, 
kind of it's just perfect you know if Allison Chains did an 80s hairband song it really is kind of a way to oh my gosh i think i know what when you're talking about yeah <laughs> like like it just that's what it reminded me of like if Jerry Cantrell recorded a Cinderella oh, so song funny. like it yeah, just you know. All right, all right. I, I, the, you, you have proven a point. It's <laughs> hilarious because oftentimes my band, my bandmates and I have oftentimes said, I th- okay, since I think you're giving it away, I am only going to assume you're talking about circles. Um, so, Actually, I'm talking about – oh, I don't even – I closed the page on it. Uh, hold on one second. Turn around? Um, it is the – I think it's the fourth song that's on the page. Let's see. Okay, so you've got break. Okay, uh, I'm I'm gonna guess here because I want to think about which one. Hold on, I'll tell you which one it is. We've got five songs. Monochrome. Oh wow. Okay. (laughs) All right. So you went a different place. That was. Wait a minute. I'm glad to hear that. Wait a minute. Maybe maybe I'm thinking of the wrong one. Hold on. Let me open the page real quick. Uh, (laughs) Ensign Red. uh, It is. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it's monochrome. I'm pretty sure it's monochrome that I'm thinking of. Um, well, well, if it is monochrome, I'm, is. I'm happy to hear that because that's one, that is one of our more recent. When you said the Jerry Cantrell, Allison Chains, I was almost certain you were talking about Circles, which is one of the first songs yeah, that we ever. That's like the second one, right? Yeah, we yeah we yeah. put it together, and I was like, yeah. okay, cool, you know. Like, well, that like, one was that the but, yeah the Allison Chains in that one is very obvious. Um, and, yeah, and the funny thing is, it's one of those songs that we've oftentimes said, do we really want to still keep this up here? Yeah. But every time that we've thought about taking it down, somebody has come back to us and says, I really love that song. Yeah. That's a really great song. And I have to stop myself and say, you know what? Yeah. It's always the case yeah. that when you are a performer, you are your own worst critic. Yeah. And the songs that you think are going to be really good, nobody pays any attention to. Yeah. And the songs that you're like, oh, geez, all right, fine. Well, it, we don't really – I don't see any reason why we shouldn't put it up. It's, yeah. I mean, it's okay. Yeah. And that's the song that everybody goes nuts over. You know, it's yeah. like – so that's why I, I was going to laugh if you were going to say that it maybe, was – Maybe a better – yeah. But you say that it's monochrome. Yeah, maybe all a right. better maybe a better way to say it. Maybe, maybe not Alice in Chains. Maybe Saigon Kick may be okay. a better I mean, comparison. Whatever, you know? It's got that big I, chunky I, riff, that kind of late 80s, it, early 90s chunky riff, but it's still got that fun vibe to it that the, the, that the hair band side had, and it's got the... If it, yeah, if it's, if, it's not, if it's a syncopated riff that I'm thinking of, I can totally see why you would say yeah. that. And, you know, and that's great. I'm glad, I'm glad to yeah. hear it. Again, it's just, you know, we never... We put this like every performer will put stuff out there. Right. Some stuff you feel really good about, and eh, you know you get a man. <laughs> or you put something out there that's like, well, okay. I mean, it's it's all right, and you get a great response. Like, yeah. What? <laughs> so you know, I've I've learned to not second guess. I've yeah. learned to just if you like something that we've got and you want to enjoy, you know, enjoy it for what it is. Hey, we're glad we're glad to do it. We're yeah. glad to play it, and uh, it's always neat to see what people respond to. And so. frankly, if people who aren't us are responding to it, that's a good indication that, hey, maybe we did something right. <laughs> yeah. So what we're going to do is we're going to wrap it up. Uh, go check him out. Buy the music on uh, Bandcamp. Uh, it is uh, ensignred.bandcamp.com. Um, all the stuff are there. And we're going to stick 
monochrome on here at the end and let you hear it, give you an idea of what it's about. And then you can go check out um, all the other cool stuff and um, find him on TikTok because he does amazing TikTok videos that are just awesome. And you'll see me commenting there, making stupid comments, <laughs> um, you know, like calling Quiet Riot the greatest uh, Slade tribute band. <laughs> And, 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 and I say that I don't say that in a hateful way. I love Quiet no, no, Riot. No, I totally get um, what you said. No, but uh, you know, there's there's just so many parallels between the two. And really, when if you listen to Kevin sing, him and Naughty oh, yeah. have so much style no, that is so similar that they really like. If they couldn't do it now, but if they would have ever wanted to make a Slade movie, Kevin is hands down the would have been the obvious choice to portray Naughty in that movie. Like, it just would have been a no-brainer. Um, that would have been. You know, the the way uh, What's-His-Face should have played Freddy in that movie, uh, the the Mark, Mark Martell, dude, you know, he just, you know. <laughs> I know they used his voice, but anyways, this is a noise report. Uh, this is Mr. Michael Larson. I need to shut the fuck up. Um, <laughs> Thanks so much for having me. Yes. Um, uh, wrap it up with Monochrome, and we are... Out of here.